Amen. You may be seated. Indeed, how long, O Lord? As the Old Testament believers were asking that question, Lord, how long until the Messiah comes? How long until the Messiah comes? We as New Testament believers are asking, O Lord, how long until you come again? How long until you return? Amen. Indeed, we've been studying the book of Micah. If you were with us Wednesday night, you were in for a special treat about how to read the Old Testament um, in a proper perspective, being Christ-centered. And um, I want to encourage you, if you missed that, for you to watch it online. And there were a couple of handouts from that um, that I believe are on the website, and you can download those. If not, they will be on that soon. Um, and I want to encourage you to do that as we're looking at this beautiful picture of God's judgment and His mercy all found in Christ. We come now to um, our 13th message from the book of Micah, this little seven-chapter book of the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a sermon outline, lift your hand in here if you would, and uh, these gentlemen will be glad to get one to you. If you're watching online, maybe you just started this message online, I want to encourage you, you can go to our website and download the notes. It will especially help you today um, in that you notice today is three pages. That doesn't mean it's three times longer than usual or even a third longer than usual. Um, but I just want you to see some key passages toward the end of the message that we will, um, that we will just really enjoy as they really round out the picture of God's great grace in our lives. My sins are many, but His mercy is more. Now, we've learned a song that those are part of the lyrics. My sins, they are busy, but His mercy is more. We've been studying the gospel according to Micah, uh, the picture of Micah, about God's great mercy and His judgment. And this morning, we're going to be covering a very key concept that I believe is going to deepen your appreciation for the whole Word of God but specifically in how He saves us and what He does. If you're new to us today, whether online or here in the room, just kind of notice the review. This will help you a little bit to know where we are. Uh, church family, how many prophecy cycles are there, are there in these seven little chapters? How many prophecy cycles? There's three. And notice that there's three. And they go, they, they, they involve two key things, God's judgment and then His mercy. God's judgment and then His mercy. There's three prophecy cycles in general. Look at the first one there, destruction and regathering. That's chapters one and two. Look at the second one, doom and what? Deliverance. So they're doomed because these are the God's people in the Old Testament, supposed to be set aside for him, but they keep leaving the obedience to his law, leaving the obedience to his covenant with them. They keep breaking that, and yet he doesn't say, forget you, he comes and alongside them in love, he chastises them. In love, he spanks them as a nation, sometimes through foreign nations coming and sometimes from within. But destruction and regathering, doom and deliverance over and over again. The third cycle, denunciations. This means God is denouncing them. He's proclaiming they're wrong, and yet he's saving them. That's verses chapter 6 and 7 where we've been. So there's two indictments. You see that thing where it says God's indictments, and that's chapter 6, 1 through 5. And then last week, we studied chapter 6, 9 through 16. That was last week. Well, this morning, we look again at Israel's reply. So God makes an indictment, and Israel replies. 
And um, this morning we'll be looking at the second one of those. It's chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And then we'll come next week to God's exaltation and salvation of his people, chapter 7, verses 11 through 20. So we're nearing our end of uh, this great book of the Bible, this great powerhouse passage um, of God's grace and his love, even in the Old Testament in the midst of his judgment. There's a key phrase here that's new. So this one is new. It's under the review, but it's, it's new to us. In Micah, notice this, in Micah we see that God's judgment brings his salvation for his true people. God's judgment brings his salvation. Now, for a long time, many of you have this thought, well, there's God's judgment, and it works against his salvation. God's judgment condemns, and it, and it doesn't help to save. Well, Micah is showing us that that's not true, that God is actually saving us through his judgment. And this is, this is in the wisdom of God and how he reveals himself to us and how he reveals who we are in the desperation of our need. Notice the little box that's there on the, what is, what is the word on the left? What is the word that's in the, there? Judgment. And that, what does it lead to? It leads to salvation. So this is, a, this is another way. You could go back and you could kind of look through this afternoon. You could go through this box a little bit with the passages. Chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 2, verse 11 is judgment. And then it, it winds up in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 in salvation. And 3, and f- verse, chapters 4 and 5 and 6 as we are now in coming to chapters 7. So over there on the right-hand side, you see that God saves through judgment. They're not separated. And look at what's held on to by this. God's justice is clearly seen by working through his judgment. Now, now think about that with me. You see, if, if God did not work through his judgment against our sin, we could come to think that, that he's not really a just God because he's let sin go unpunished. He's let sin into his presence without it being atoned for. But our God is just, and he doesn't do that. He'll he'll never do that. His justice remains intact precisely because he judges us and he saves us in the process. Now, this is all going to make sense over the next few minutes as we study. I want you to hold on to this thought. Because you're going to see it in the text, and you're going to see it very powerfully. And maybe for many of us this morning, it's never been clear before, but I'm praying, my prayer is, is that it will be clear this morning as you look at this. So God saves through judgment. His justice is seen. What else is seen here? His mercy is seen, and his love is seen. So he remains just. We see that he's merciful, and what drives his mercy? What motivates his mercy except that it's his love? So ultimately, because God saves us through his judgment, we are seeing that his mercy and his love are beautifully put on display through this. Last week, we looked at chapter 6, 9 through 16. Do you see this under last week? We see the voice of God. Can you circle that? The voice of God pronouncing judgment on Israel's sins. 
their sin would have been de- excuse me their sin would have devastating consequences and we went through that last week remember we said that they're not going to be able to they're going to be sick they're not going to be able to gain weight they're, all the all the fruit is going to be gone everything's going to be um, missing and their their security is gone other nations are going to come after them so devastating consequences that god is declaring Look at the last one there. Instead of humbly walking with God, they walked with what kind of kings? They walked with wicked kings. And we, we noticed last week that, that in this present day, the Christians in South Florida, in Broward County, Dade County, we could be tempted to claim God with our mouth, but to walk in the way of wicked kings to walk in the way of the culture around us. And I'm not, I know I mentioned Biden and Trump last week, but it was, I'm not just talking about the political arena. I'm talking about the whole arena that we're in, that we can live in step with this world and out of step with God, even while thinking of ourselves religious, even while thinking of ourselves as godly, even while thinking of ourselves as Christians. But we see that One of the great things that we can gain out of Micah is that we're being warned not to do that and be self-deceived. Self-deception is a very real possibility. And Jesus, if you go back and you read in your New Testament, Jesus brings it up a lot. And so we want to be careful to not come to God on our terms, but come to God on His terms, noticing all that His Word has said. And we can do that by the help of His Holy Spirit This morning, you can understand even a passage from Micah, and I pray that God does that in our hearts this morning. So, up there, under last week, it says chapter 6 through 9, it was God's voice. Well, this morning, we come to chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and circle that little reference there, and circle that part that says, it's the voice of Israel, or the voice of God's people. This is Micah and God's people, and they're lamenting. They're lamenting the consequences of their what? Not their godliness, their godlessness. So they had gone away from God. God said, here's the trouble that's coming. And remember, we look back at Deuteronomy 28 from 700 years earlier. It had been predicted. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. And if you disobey, there's going to be curses. And that's what God was declaring last week. This week we see it's real. It hurts. This really hurts. I know he warned, but now I am declaring that in my own experience, this hurts. And that's how it starts out. Notice here in Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. We're going to see it on the front side and then on the back side. Notice what it says. Woe is me. Circle that. Woe is me. You see, this is the voice of the people crying out. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no ripe fig, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. And each hunts the other with a net. Verse 3. 
Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. We're going to see what all this means. Verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now, can you underline that phrase in verse 4? And unfortunately, I've had to make it a little bit smaller so it all fits on that line, but I want you to see it carefully where it says, the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. That's a key part of this transition. It's a key part of this passage that we're going to look at. Now their confusion is at hand. Verse 5, Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father, verse 6, for the son treats the father with contempt. Y'all are a little slow this morning. I hear you out there. Look at verse 6. So he, he said, don't, don't trust a neighbor, a friend, even the one who lies in your yards. And that theme goes on, verse 6. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her, what? Against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Big circle around number seven. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Verse 10. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Would you put above the word Lord or right over the top of those L-O-R-D, write three, or excuse me, four letters. What four letters do I want you to write over that? Does anybody know? Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. The personal name of God. Can you guys say those, word, those letters together with me? Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. Now that's translated as Lord in many of, our, many of our scriptures. If you have an older translation of the Bible, it's translated as Jehovah. And there's, there's reasons for that, but it's a, it's a Hebrew four-letter word without any vowels, so we're not exactly sure how, you know, you got to have vowels in order to know how to pronounce something. But God in His wisdom has said, I am Y-H-W-H, I am Yahweh. Now, when we get to heaven, we'll fully understand what He's doing with His personal name. But here's the big thing that you need to get out of this. God tells you His name as as. Lucas's first name is Andrew's first name, Mauricio, or, or any one of us has a first name. God, God is sharing with us his name. He wants us to know him personally. 
We, we don't serve a removed God. We serve a, a relational God. So this person who has mocked them in verse 10, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is Yahweh, your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down in the mire of the streets. This morning we are looking at the salvation of God as seen as it comes to us through his judgment. And I want you to notice a few things. First of all, back in chapter 7 and verse 1, woe is me for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat. Well, let's kind of unpack this a little bit. First of all, number one is this, is that the people cry out under God's judgment. They're crying out under God's judgment. And that phrase, woe is me. I want you to notice two things about this. This is personal and it's painful. It's personal and it's painful. And not only is it personal and it's painful, but look at the other part of the top line of that poetry. In verse 1 it says, woe is me. And then what does it say after that? What does it say? For I have become. And then it describes what he's become. Here's the point. It wasn't always like this. It wasn't always that this is new. And you know, when we run in sin and when we keep running in sin and the further we get in the road of sin and all of the trouble that comes, we can sometimes look back and go, man, how did I get into this mess? It wasn't always like this. Many of you would say, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to finally wake up and to realize that you're a million miles from where you used to be way down a road of pain and difficulty. And that's where we see not only the human race is found in its sin, but the nation of Israel, the people of God would find themselves in this place, and even the individuals, as we can even relate to this ourselves. This is the way sin works. It takes us down a path, and we say it wasn't always this way. Look at the next phrases there in verse 1. It says, woe is me for I have become, and then notice this description, when the summer fruit has been gathered, okay, so just imagine this, you have a big vineyard, it's toward the end of the summer, the grape harvest has been really good, good rains. You come in and you bring in your team of people and they gather together all of the grapes. So they have these big baskets, or in France you've got a tractor with a bunch of people and people get off work for the harvest days and everybody goes out there and picks and helps pick in the vineyard, and it's just a big day of harvesting. Well, by and large, when we see in the Old Testament that they would have a harvest day, when you were growing fields, when you were growing grain, and you would have a harvest day, you would come in and you would harvest the vast majority of all of that, but we see that some would be left behind, and even some would be left behind even intentionally. And then the poor who don't own the big farm or who don't have the regular job, the poor who really don't have very much to eat, they would come in and they would move through the vineyard or they would move through the field and they would do what is called gleaning. They would pick up that which was left behind by the harvesters. And they would, I mean, it'd be a little bit more work because there wasn't much there. And they would have to kind of go through that. So now we see even a third place of this. So look what it says, woe is me for I've become when the, when the summer fruit has been gathered, so the harvest was brought, 
And when the grapes have been gleaned, so even the gleaners have come through, the poor have come through and taken the rest of it. So look at where we are now. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Here's the point. The sin takes it all. The sin comes and leaves us with nothing. That's what sin will do. Notice number two. The godly is perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Number two is this. When the godly are gone, trouble comes. Wherever the, tr- wherever the godly diminish, whenever the godly die out and the next generation is not godly, this is when trouble really comes. Micah and the remnant are assumed to remain. Yes, that is true. But even though they are there, nevertheless, all are sinful, even the remnant, even, the remnant, even Micah the prophet. He too is a sinner. Proverbs chapter 14 and verses 1 through 3, and I want you to see this. It's on the screen, and I, and I put, no, I want you to see where Proverbs 14, Isaiah 53, Romans 3, they're all saying the same thing, and I believe that they're all quoted from this psalm, but look what it says. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven to the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become what? Corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah would say it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has been turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, that is the Messiah, the chastisement or the correction of us all. I want you to notice this here that that shows up over and over again, stating that we are sinners. Romans 3.23 is an important statement of that, a retelling of that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, when we see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none who is righteous to save, not even one. Now this goes on to show us, look what it says there, Look what it says in verse 2, and there is no one upright among mankind, and then look what they do, they all lie in wait for blood, lie in wait. If your English is a second language, you may not know that that means, that's, that's saying that people are waiting to pounce. They, there's a trap set, they're waiting to spring the trap. They lie in wait, and they don't just lie in wait, but they lie in wait for blood. This is a, a murderous thing. And each hunts and, and each hunts the other with a net. I mean, yes, you can think Mad Max in the wasteland. The craziness of that film series. Not, not, I'm not recommending that you go watch it. I'm really not. But I'm just when I when I think about this, I'm thinking back to scenes of people capturing one another with nets and people setting traps for one another. Hunger Games. I mean, this this kind of barbarism. This kind of barbarian behavior where we, we trap a human like, a, like an animal. 
and all for a murderous purpose, an enslavement. You see, this is, this is treacherous. When the godly die out, they start netting people. Look at verse 3. Their hands are on what is evil, and underline it, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. That portion, do it well, and they weave it together. Here's number three. They're really good at being bad. They're they're developed and advanced in their sin. You say, boy, these are really bad people. Well, be careful that we don't allow this text to only go to those who seem most wicked before we recognize that we can have the same devices in our own heart. We need to carefully think about the ways in which we entrap others. We need to carefully think about the ways in which we think ill. Jesus said that if you hate your brother, you've murdered him. Jesus said if you lust after a woman, it's as if you have slept with her. Jesus has over and over shown us that the issue of the law is about the broken heart of man and that we get really good at being bad. And one of the most difficult, or excuse me, one of the most concerning ways of that is that we would think highly of ourselves. You see, from the top down, they work together in sinning. They weave it together. You know, you don't just, the, the idea of here is weaving is a, is a lot of work. Um, there's, there's some of you that have probably done crochet. There's some of you that, have, what's the other one, crochet? I always mix it up. Knitting, thank you. I always thought they were the same thing to me, but boy, you, those are fighting words um, among some. But crochet or knitting or weaving, I've, we've lived in an area of the world where they make Berber rugs. Why are they called Berber rugs? Because they're actually made by a group of people called the Berbers. That's why they're called Berber rugs. Um, but we, and we've seen those rugs being made by people out in the country. And, and you got to really work at this. You've you got to work at knitting and weaving, and it's very methodical, and it's very purposeful, and you know exactly what you're doing. Here's the idea about their sin. It's very methodical. It's very purposeful. That's what they're doing, and that's, that's exactly what can happen with the human heart as we continue on in our sin. Look at verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. No one seems to agree with what that really means. As I study and as I look at this and I, I look back through commentators and I look back through language and everything else, there, there's not a lot of clear direction on what that means. I could go through several different possibilities, but what I want you to notice most of all about verse 4 is the fact that the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. That is what we don't want to miss. Look at verse 4. So now the judgment, fill it in, begins The day of the watchman is this, the enemy attacks. It's kind of like, think about the poor watchman. He sits up there on top of the wall looking out over the the countryside off the wall of the city. And he sits there for days, weeks, perhaps months, maybe even years without an alarm. But suddenly, he notices something happening on the horizon. And there's a dust cloud that's coming up from behind the hill. 
And suddenly he starts to go, hey, do we have visitors scheduled for today? And somebody goes, I don't know. And then he's go, and he starts to say, I don't think that this is normal. Sound the alarm. And this becomes the great day of the watchman. Why? Because it's the day of attack. That's the picture that is here. You're, God is saying the judgment is coming. The people are exclaiming. This is the day that the judgment, the punishment has come. And then look what the result of this is. It's confusion. I want you to imagine your city as people have run in from the fields. They've boarded up the gates. The army that's attacking is around. And the siege has begun. And there's mayhem in the city as they're trying to prepare their ways to defend themselves. And then as they start to notice that, well, we're not going to defend ourselves from this army. They are going to overcome us. How am I going to survive? It goes from how can we survive as a town to every man for himself. That is the siege that sin brings upon people. And it results in great confusion. And that's what this says. Look at the end of verse 4. Now their confusion is at hand. Sin confuses in the midst of all of its trouble. Look at verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. So it, it, it goes from outer circles to inner circles. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Look at number five. Sin does this. Natural relationships are destroyed. The relationships that you should have in your life that should be good. You should have a good relationship with your neighbor. You should have a good relationship with your friends. The one who lies in your arms, your own wife or your, your own husband, is, as it were, that, that this is the great breakdown of these things, classic breakdowns. And I know you're turning it over, and that's fine, but I just want you to look up here and get this. Satan hates relationship. He hates relationship. God is a God of relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he creates us, and he makes us in his image. He makes us relatable to him. God loves relationship. God with himself, God with us, and then he gives us all of these relationships down here. And he's designed us. He's made our hearts and our minds and our bodies to properly relate. And Satan hates all of that because it's all in the image of God. And he's going to steal all the glory from God that he can. He's going to seek to destroy it. He's going to do everything he can to combat that truth. So, so sin comes in and sin robs us of the relationships that are so very critical and central to our lives. Look at the next page. Look at verse 6. It goes on. Turns from the one who lies in your arms to, look at verse 6, for the son treats the father with contempt. So now here we are in the home. And even between parent and child, the daughter rises up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies 
are the men of his own house. Is this not a clear picture of the tremendous trends in our world today? Is this not what sin does? Do we think, do you, what person would, could imagine that we would say that our lives and our families are closer together now than they were 50 or 100 years ago? By no means. Look at this, verse 6, fill it in. Sin infiltrates and destroys core relationships. This is part of the great consequence. This is part of the great cry of the people. And here we see more classic breakdown. And it's the classic breakdown of children rejecting their parents. And that is a, that's a classic trend. And there's reasons for that when you think about a, a generation as a, as a society devolves, as society becomes more sinful, that you go from being, being close at one generation to the next generation, and then the next generation, it's devolving down as the world has more influence on your children very often than you do. And the world, the more sinful the world is, the more it attacks that relationship between you. And this is why Christians need to be very aware of the way sin works and how Satan seeks to destroy your relationships in your family. Not to mention your relationship to God. I, I, my heart is heavy about this. Because as pastors, we spend a lot of time talking about family relationships. And we see the struggle that you have. We see the struggle that you bear. We see the, ten, the trends and we see the, the, the difficulties that we all feel. And I, we, just, we just need to recognize that as the world becomes more and more impactful in its and its persuasiveness towards sin with media and with all of the other things of the spirit of the age, it, it is not upholding go love and honor your mother and father. That's not the message. The message is be free. Do what you want to do. Be true to yourself. Not be true to your family, not be true to your church, not be true to your God. It's all the exaltation of self. It's, look at me. I mean, we, we're, we're a long way down those roads, and we see that it comes more and more to a, a lack of a willingness to sit and listen. You know, each time that a parent, even as an adult, each time that a parent speaks to their child, their adult children, you know, how many of you have experienced this? There's this little thing inside of you that goes, <laughs> they start saying, well now, son, what, have you been thinking about whatever? And you're sitting there going, <laughs> it's real. And it's becoming more and more and more intense. And the further we get away from God's law that says, children, obey your parents, the further we get away from honor your mother and father, that your days may be long upon the earth. You see, that was, that was big. 
And the further we go in sin, the less we want to do that. And so in verse 6, we see the son treats his father with contempt. Listen, when that's going on, just understand that this is the, the progression of sin. You say, what about the father that, that isn't worthy of, of that? Well, we're not talking about that as a societal trend. I know that there's individual issues there. But in our own hearts, as we see a society that has less and less esteem for the sweetness and the beauty of what God has created in family so that we can know Him better. And all through, not just from childhood, but all through adulthood, we need to recognize that this is a key indicator of massive sin in a society. And when the city is under siege and it becomes every man for himself, a man's own enemies are the people of his own home. Now, I want you to notice this statement here. What should bring greatest joy often brings greatest sorrow. What God has made to be so beautiful of a family, a son to his parents or a daughter to her parents, very often can bring the greatest agony that can ever be imagined. My friends, this is all as a result of a society steeped in sin, in our own hearts in sin. And if you look at that list of verses that are there, that list of verses, if you go back and you look those up tonight, what you'll see there is this constant reminder just everywhere in Scripture, we see it pop up over and over and over again that as sin progresses, children will disobey their parents more. And people will even become murderers of their own mothers and fathers. This is Satan's great goal. So this tremendous pain, tremendous trouble, the nation is crying out. But then there's a voice of righteousness. Look at verse 7. This would be Micah's voice. This would be the remnants crying out and saying, but as for me... I will look to the Lord. The rest of the town may go crazy. The rest of the nation may lose its head. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now look at number seven. But Micah in the remnant sees on the only hope. This is the only hope. The others are not looking for hope. They're just looking for some type of an escape. And what is the only hope? The answer is in God. It's not in more sin. It's not in more selfishness. You see, Michael doesn't say here, I'm going to go back and try to fix it all. That's not what he says. Children, parents, you can't go back and just fix it all. What you need to recognize is that the hope for your family, the hope for your life is to run to God in his salvation. This is the only hope. Look at verse 8. Well, no, wait. Before you do that, last statement under number 7. Very important. His salvation comes to those who wait on him in faith. Now, that is the key there. Look what it says in verse 7. But as we'll look to the Lord, I will wait. Now, we live in a world that doesn't want to wait for anything. How many of you used a microwave this morning? 
I mean, we do that, right? Nothing wrong with that. It's not sinful to use a microwave. But boy, it's a lot fat. Now, some of you are going, well, how else would you do it? I know some of you don't remember before there was microwaves. How many of you have ever cooked on a fire, like at your home? Didn't anybody grow up in a circumstance where you actually had to fire, have a fire in your home? Okay, there's Leo. And if you, I see several of you are saying, oh yeah, we had to have a fire. So compare building a fire in your house with doing do 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 boo. I mean, you know, you build the fire, you wait for it to build up in coals, it's finally going to boil the water on the kettle, and, and, and I know that's a foreign language to a bunch of people over here, but I mean, that, you know, we, we don't wait for anything, everything is fast, it's getting faster and faster and faster, and I believe that God's people have to be the kind of people that in the midst of the, the whirlwind of the world, that we take time to wait on God. It means getting alone in your bedroom with His Word. That means regularly spending time in, in His Word, day in and day out, waiting upon God. It doesn't mean sitting there idly. It means being quick to be still and know who He is, to learn of who He is to hear His voice show us our sin that we need to turn away from and look to Him in righteousness. Verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Look at verse 8. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, what does it say there? The Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Very important. We're going to see what that is. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Now verses 8 and 9 are, are here and notice these. This is God's salvation that comes through His judgment. So he's bringing judgment in order to save us. It's not that God's people do not sin or suffer. They do. They do sin and suffer. God's true people sin and suffer. There's no doubt about that. But the salvation of God causes them to rise and to see. He saves us. So we, we look to him and he raises us up. Notice this in verse 8, excuse me, in verse 9. Notice that God's anger, or that word indignation, that means anger. God's anger is on his sinful people. Look what it says in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Now, here's amazing. Don't miss this. The most important part of the message is right here. Notice that the prosecutor, that's the God who is prosecuting Israel, the prosecutor becomes the advocate. This is what God does. He brings the statement of judgment against us, and then he comes around and he becomes our advocate for us. 
This is the amazing grace of God. This is the amazing work of God in His mercy. He says, yes, indeed, you are guilty, but I will save you. This is the prosecutor turned advocate. This is, notice this, this is the righteous judge himself pays the judgment. And this is where we see the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ in Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Notice it again in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads. You see, that's a legal term. He pleads my cause. And he, in more legal terms, he executes judgment for me. And how does he do that? Put out there to the side. Through Jesus Christ. That's what he does. Through Messiah, he comes to redeem he brings me out of the light, and so I shall look upon his vindication. Number 10. Look at verse 10. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Think about that. that, that that's, she's going to be totally crushed under the hooves and under the, the carts and under everything that is there. It's going to be smashed down to nothing. See, verse 10 is this. The unrepentant wicked will be trampled down. That's what happens. The enemy, that's the sinful who do not repent and believe. The enemies of God who do not ever come around to seeing and hearing and hearing his voice and responding to him in repentance, in humility, walking with God. And what will they do? The enemy will see. They will see their horrific error. They're going to see it before it comes. Their horrific error in rejecting God and mocking the faith of his people. And this is why you as a Christian never need to take vengeance in your hands about anyone that ever comes after you. God will deal with them. It is your job to pray for your enemies, to do good to those who persecute you, because God may be working a work of his miraculous grace in revealing himself and his kind of love through you to them. And very often you may never even know that he did it. This brings great glory to God that you would trust him that much. That you would not seek to hate them and take vengeance into your own hands. But you can rest assured that if they remain the wicked, that they will see the error of their ways and they will be dealt with by God. Perhaps this causes us to think of Job's wife. Job's wife had said to Job, why do you trust in God? Curse God and die. Be delivered from this. There are people that are around us that will reject God all the way through, and sometimes those very close to us. Some key applications, very quickly. Number one, the difference between the wicked and the godly is not whether or not they sin, but whether or not they turn to God in faith and repentance. That is the only difference, that God breathes upon them the call of His Spirit to come and turn to Him and to believe, and they they hear his voice, they turn, and they look to him in faith and repentance. 
This is the only difference for Psalm 1 between the wicked and the righteous. One embraces God's way, that's the righteous. The other goes the way of the world, that is the wicked. And how does that happen? It happens only through the grace of God upon those who would turn to Him. And you see, this is also, this is the picture of genuine faith in God. It is the only hope of righteousness. It is faith. It is not works. And we see this with Abraham. You see, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him righteousness. He believed God. He trusted in God. He didn't trust in himself. He didn't trust in his wealth. He didn't trust in anything or anyone else. He believed in God. That is quoted again in Romans chapter 4. Notice again, Galatians 3, James 2, Genesis 15, 6 is quoted over and over again, showing us that it is by faith that we live in righteousness. The just shall live by faith. So we see that it is God's grand plan to bring his people to himself through one way, and that is through faith. Notice the next one, and this is very important. God's people are the salt and light of the earth. Jesus said so. Where there are few of them, chaos and evil will reign. Notice Matthew chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt? How shall it be restored? It is no longer good for anything, and notice this language, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, look at verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My friends, we are called to be the salt and light to the world, and when there are few, we see the chaos of sin reigning and ruling. Flip your sheet and notice with me the last two. And this comes from verses 8 and 9, very important. The righteous God who judges and condemns is also the gracious God who saves and defends. This is the gospel of how God saves us. The righteous God who judges and condemns is also the gracious God who saves and defends. You know, our salvation is so much greater well, it's, it's the only way it can happen, but it, it's so much greater when we consider the fact that God, the just, becomes the justifier. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, and look at the very end. In verse 21, it says, for our sake, He, that is God the Father, so you see verse 21, for our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, that's God the Son, to circle the word be, to be sin. He becomes sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that's in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is God coming and pouring his justice out upon Christ. God taking upon himself the sins that we bore. 
This is the judge becoming the justifier. Romans 8 puts it out another way. Look at Romans 8, and, or excuse me, Romans 5. And verse 8 is the verse that we normally quote, by, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that we, we often stop there. But look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, look what it says, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is God the judge coming and paying the price for us. And if there's any doubt in it, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I love this passage. For to this you have been called. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. This, I know we're at the end. Look at this. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his, in his steps. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, when he, suffered he did not threaten, but continued, look at this, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then here's how he did it. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the glorious gospel that we see Micah talking about. That God vindicates us in his righteousness. And it's our job to look to him in faith to turn away from our sin and to believe. Verse 3, um, or number 3 here, is a key aspect for us to understand that, that God is about saving us through his righteous judgment. Look at number 4. There is a coming a day when the wicked will see two important things. A, they will see their great error. And B, they will see the Messiah's great glory. And we see that in verse 10, where we see that there, there's going to come a day where the one who said, where is your God? They're going to be faced with the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So that at the time of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is what is going to happen. This is the glorious. And I, I would call you today to say, have you seen the salvation of God in your life? Do not turn him away. Recognize that his grace is so majestic that where your sins were many, his mercy is more. This is the way of God. This is the message of Micah. This is the message of the Bible, that he is a holy God, that we are a sinful people, and he is gracious to save those who will receive him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that over and over and over again we see the message of your plan of salvation throughout the Bible. Lord, it's hinted to in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Lord, it's displayed in the people of Noah and Joseph and Abraham. Lord, we see throughout the Old Testament you long-suffering with your people. Time and time again, Lord, that you have provided for them and that they would turn away. And Lord, if we apply all of that to our own hearts, we can recognize that we feel the same pulls. We may not be tempted to make a golden calf with our jewelry, but we may be tempted to drive an idol or to live in an idol or to watch an idol. We may be tempted to have other idolatries that keep us just as far from you as the false gods of Israel. Lord, we believe that you're coming again. And we believe that you're coming for those who are anxiously awaiting your return. And Lord, I believe that how we live our lives reveals whether or not we are anticipating your return. Lord, I pray that the Christians today in this room, that they would just really joyfully celebrate the fact that your love and your grace and your mercy is what saves them, that the judge becomes the justifier, and that we would marvel at your mercy and your grace in that. Lord, I pray that we would be ever more amazed at how your word tells us the same story over and over and over again. I pray that that would encourage people in this room. I pray that they would be encouraged to go home and teach their children diligently the God of grace, the God of holiness, the God of mercy and love. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who live and swim and eat and breathe and drink the gospel, that we would remain in it. Father, thank you that where our sins are many, that your mercy is more. In Jesus' name, amen.